You're listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville. For their support, we'd like to thank Hula Tortilla, offering homemade organic tortillas and tamales utilizing locally sourced ingredients, serving Taco Tuesdays to go with vegetarian grasshopper or carnitas taco, plus imported food products from Oaxaca, Mexico, Next to Food and Juice, Nevada City, holatortilla.com. And also Meze, family-owned organic conscious foods on Mill Street, Grass Valley, offering Mediterranean, Middle Eastern cuisine, locally farmed ingredients for daily scratch-made pitas, falafels, hummus, and salads. Online pre-order recommended, mezeeatery.com. After NPR headlines and local weather, we'll have this week's edition of Bravehearts. And I'll be speaking to Brandon, the tree sitter, sometimes known as Tarzan, who has come down from the tree in Nevada City that that PG&E has been trying to cut down to improve fire safety near their power line. Also, Charlotte Peterson will be speaking with local painter and art educator Denise Way and about her show, A Retrospective, 22 Years of Painting the Yuba River, that will be shown at the Center for the Arts. Closing out today's newscast, we'll have an essay by Molly Fisk. At 6.30, we'll be having Money Matters with Mark Cunaberti and 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. Speaking at the White House tonight with his path to the 270 electoral votes needed to stay in office narrowing, President Donald Trump is showing no signs of conceding the race. Two days after voters went to the polls, there's still no clear winner in the election. A defiant Trump tonight continued to allege voting irregularities without evidence and saying he still thinks he's the winner. I'd like to provide the American people with an update on our efforts to protect the integrity of our very important 2020 election. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. If you count the votes that came in late, we're looking at them very strongly, but a lot of votes came in late. In the key states where ballots are still being counted, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and North Carolina. Earlier today, Democrat Joe Biden said he remains confident when the vote counting is done, he will prevail. The Trump campaign has filed a federal lawsuit trying to halt the counting of ballots in Philadelphia. The campaign has filed several complaints like this about not getting the access it wants to counting sites. But some of those cases have already been thrown out. NPR's Lena Seljuk has more. In Pennsylvania, the Trump campaign is claiming that its observers are not getting close enough access to the vote count in the massive center in Philadelphia. Here's Trump surrogate Pam Bondi speaking to reporters in the middle of protests by the vote counting center. They have refused to let us have meaningful, a meaningful view of the vote count. They have continued to count the votes. 
A state court has ruled that the campaign should be able to get within six feet of the vote counting, but the Trump campaign is accusing the local board of elections of, quote, intentionally refusing to allow any representatives and poll watchers for President Trump and the Republican Party. Alina Salyuk, NPR News, Philadelphia. Georgia is one of the states still counting outstanding results that will determine the outcome of the presidential race. As Emma Hurt reports from member station WABE in Atlanta, the pace of returns is something election officials anticipated. Gabriel Sterling is Georgia's voting implementation manager, and he wants to remind everyone that a long counting timeline is expected given the unprecedented number of absentee ballots that have been cast this year. Fast is great, and we appreciate fast. We more appreciate accuracy. Accuracy is going to be the, the bedrock upon which people will believe the outcomes of these elections, be they on the winning side or the losing side. County elections officials are doing the best they can on little sleep, he says, and they hope to get through the remaining uncounted absentee votes today. But the number of outstanding overseas military and provisional ballots are still unclear. For NPR News, I'm Emma Hurt in Atlanta. Minnesota's rejected request to move the trial of four former Minneapolis police officers charged in the death of George Floyd. Judge Peter Cahill also ruling the four will be tried together. Defense attorneys had argued potential publicity made it impossible the former officers would receive a fair trial and cited a hearing at which the men and their lawyers were confronted by angry protesters. However, the judge said he was unpersuaded by their arguments. This is NPR. And taking a look at the weather, first in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, it looks like we'll have a few showers tonight and Sunday with cooling temperatures down to the low 50s. In Sacramento, low of 53, high of 64. Tomorrow, again, possible rain showers tomorrow and Sunday. And in Truckee, low of 30, high of 41, 50% chance of rain tomorrow. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Brave Hearts. Good evening. Tonight I'm sitting here with Tom Keller of Communities Beyond Violence, and I just want to thank you for joining us tonight, Tom. You bet. So what changes and impact have you seen as a result of CBB's work? I guess in mentioning the number of folks we've housed in the last year, you know, that, that in itself is a huge, huge deal for us. Basically what happens is you know, we're very much involved in both pre-housing case management as well as the post-housing case management. You know, what happens is, is once you get pretty good population of folks out into the community who are permanently housed, then the work of supporting those folks to keep them housed and to keep them stable and to help keep them focused, that becomes, you know, the, the more people you house, then the bigger that becomes, the bigger the job. Is Community Beyond Violence able to do follow-up services and support, and do they work with other organizations to provide that support as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're going to be doing a lot more of that, um, William. It's like 
Um, we've just hired a post housing case manager, which will be the third person um, in housing, uh, along with myself and the pre housing case manager. So uh, we're really focusing on that right now. That post housing person is going to be uh, very familiar with services in the community as well as being familiar with the client. So you can kind of make those connections and know, you know, how you can empower somebody to make those connections. So it's a work in progress, I think, but we know we're at a point now with so many people now housed that it, it's something that we're really trying to focus on. What kind of support could the community give community beyond violence? From my perspective, you know, anybody, anytime somebody comes to me and they say, hey, you know, I've, I've got a grandma unit. I was going to rent it and then I didn't and I've decided to rent it now. And, you know, is that something you guys think that you can use or, you know, the, where we could work together? So that kind of that kind of thing is just invaluable. When somebody comes to us with a housing opportunity, you know, we're going to jump at that and we're going to be grateful beyond belief. Anybody who wants to wish to no- donate to the organization, obviously we love that. And anybody can go online, you know, Google this community beyond violence and get right to our webpage if, if someone wants to do that. You know, there are people who will donate furniture or who want to donate food, uh, donate clothing. You know, all of these all of these things are great things to do and, and things that we're appreciative of. And, and we will help, you know, somebody to... To make that happen, all they've got to do is, you know, basically give us a give us a call. And what does healthy community support look like to you when it comes to this situation? To me, it's sort of an awareness, you know, what you know homelessness looks like, and an awareness within the community that that the person, say, standing in front of the local grocery store, who's you know um, asking for money, that's a that's a sad thing and that's a horrible thing, but it's. Just so many elements to homelessness. It's such a complex issue. You know, you've got that person in front of the store who, who's maybe begging for for money, but then you've got the mom who's sitting out on Old Tunnel Road with four kids trying to figure out how to make it through the night, keep the kids warm in the car kind of thing. It's all colors and flavors between, you know, between, you know, those two examples. Person can be a college student and, and really trying to do great in school, you know, or, or whatever. And, but they're homeless or they're couch surfing or, you know, they have no place really that they can call a permanent, permanent housing situation. That's what the community, you know, if the community as a whole, if, if we can be smart enough about realizing what the needs actually are and then trying to figure out, okay, well, as a community member, how do I, how do I contribute to, to, to making it better? You know, um, is it something that I say? Is it something that I donate? Um, you know, is it, is it my grandmother unit? You know, my grandma unit? You know, whatever it is. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities please visit calhum.org. Next up, I'm speaking with Brandon Jonas, who has been protecting a tree in Nevada City for the last few weeks. Brandon, uh, sometimes known as Tarzan, uh, you're going to be coming down from 
the tree uh, right away. Uh, tell us about what happened. Well, I don't actually know what happened exactly. Matthew Osipowski is some sort of wizard, and he pulled off a miracle. And, um, yeah, no one actually thought that it would end up this well with pg e actually making a compromise with us to actually just top the tree at 90 feet. And um, I, all the charges on me are being dropped, and I will be able to walk free as soon as I hit the ground. Are you working your way down as we speak? <laughs> as we speak, I'm lowering my possessions, and then when all of that's done, I'll be lowering myself. For our listeners that don't know too much about what we're talking about, uh, give us just a little bit of a background and how long you've been up in the tree and why. Yeah, okay, so let's see. We've been occupying this tree for three weeks, 24-7, because we felt um, that its its status as a hazard tree was unjustified, and we really just wanted to say, hey, let's, let's think about this a little bit. Let's consider your decision, PG&E. We actually, you know, our arborist says this tree is not a hazard. We should actually have a conversation. And, uh, you know, infamously now, Joanne, Joanne Drummond said, we will not tolerate any compromise because that would set a terrible precedent in California because that means that we would have to be, negotiate with all sorts of, you know, all the different cities and municipalities. So, uh, so what just happened is, well, we set a precedent and we got them to negotiate with us. We showed that it is possible. What seemed like an unstoppable steamroller, um, maybe as a heart, maybe it's that we made such a public stink about this whole thing. I don't know. I don't know what went down, but um, I am leaving this tree free. What an experience you've had uh, in the tree. Uh, can you give me some some of your deeper thoughts about your connection with the tree and trying to essentially save its life? Did you feel the tree talking to you? Yeah, I I feel a really strong kinship with Shirley now. That's that's how we nicknamed the tree. Um, yeah, short story about how we got the name. Tess and I were sitting up here, and she was like, I wonder what the tree's name is. And I said, why don't you ask it? So the first thing that popped into Tess's mind is Shirley. And then, sure enough, like five minutes later, this woman who offered to deliver us breakfast on the first morning we spent there, her name was Shirley. So what what happened there? <laughs> the uh, just some, some more background for our listeners. Yeah, this is part of a uh, what PG&E is doing to uh, make uh, you know make uh, improve the safety uh, fire safety of by removing trees that are too close to um, high voltage power lines, and they did take down all the other trees, or they are in the process. Of doing that yep. in in Nevada City, uh, am I correct with that? PG&E has taken down 262 trees so far. They were supposed to take out 263. So, uh, are you and the uh, other people that are you know part of your team here uh, trying as much as you can to get the word out to other communities about what can happen to them? Yeah, we've spread the word about this enhanced vegetation removal program. Um, maybe that's not the exact terminology, but that's the gist of, of yes, that there is this um, really strong force that wants to cut down every tree without any type of second opinion 
or giving it a single thought or giving anyone else an opinion about it. So that's why we're raising our voices here, because Nevada City is one of the first places that they rolled out this new program. And we've seen how destructive it is. So we are raising a voice for every other town which has PG&E coming to brace themselves and organize. So the compromise is that they are, are, are topping the tree. Um, I guess that's a good word to use. To where even if the tree falls, it, it, it'll fall short of the power line. Therefore, it won't be a hazard. Is that is that correct? Correct. We've been going back and forth about that all day. Well, Matthew has. So the power lines are 130 feet away. They're topping the tree down to 90 feet, which that is the best that we could do with the city insurance company. Um, and I, I just have to say that I never, ever considered this outcome to be an option. I went up into this tree just like bracing myself to get arrested and then still have the tree be cut down because even if we, you know, win the fight with PG&E, then we still have to, you know, the city's insurance company still has to say, well, is this the hazard? Well, if it is, then we're not going to, you have to cut it down yourself, Nevada City. So, yeah, we, we made we all made a huge compromise. And you're going to be greeted with a, a group of people as soon as you get down from the tree, I assume. Yes, we're going to throw a party right here on Spring Street. Brendan, uh, otherwise known as Tarzan, thank you so much for uh, keeping K- KVMR informed as to what's going on. All right, thank you so much as always. Take good care. You bet. Next up, Charlotte Peterson speaks with local painter and art educator Denise Way and Bryn Farrell from the Center for the Arts about Denise's upcoming show, A Retrospective, 22 Years of Painting the Uber River. I'm speaking with Denise Way, local painter and art educator. And Denise has an upcoming show at the Center for the Arts And I also have Bryn Farwell on the line, and Bryn is the program manager and curator of the Granucci Gallery for the Center for the Arts. I'd like to welcome both of you to KVMR. Thank you, Charlotte. Charlotte. So, Denise, you have uh, been painting the Yuba River for 22 years, and you have a show coming up titled Retrospective. You also have a book out of the same title about your Yuba River paintings. We're going to talk in a few minutes about your upcoming show, but let's talk a bit about um, your art of the Yuba and what inspired you to focus mainly on the Yuba River. Oh, okay. Um, Well, I uh, work full-time. My painting time is limited. And so um, I paint what I really love. And I happen to love rivers, children, and animals. <laughs> so um, I, it just brings out a passion in me. Uh, it inspires me continuously. Um, I feel like the river and I have a long-term relationship. And I kind of I kind of see a, a goal of trying to preserve the beauty of the Yuba as best I can. 
when I paint it. So there's so many different moods. It looks different in so many different places at so many different times. There's just so much there to work with. You, your work is large format. Why do you do your work in such large format? I kind of address that a little bit in the book, how I go from really, really, really small. I love miniatures. Uh, but I could never paint bigger than 9 by 12. And then um, I just found myself all of a sudden going for 24 by 36s, which was large, and then to 36 by 48. And, and then... I just like painting big because I like using big brushes and it loosens me up. Whereas when I paint really small, I tend to paint more tightly. So, um, yeah, I just, I love what it looks like when it's bigger as opposed to when it's smaller. And I, um, yeah, we, we can see that, that looseness, that, that more free flowing, that kind of movement. Um, mm-hmm. in the large bodies of, of work. So you had mentioned um, that your passion are rivers, children, and animals. And you do uh, art classes, both for adults, but for children as well. Would you like to talk about that just a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I've been doing um, uh, teaching children for uh, almost that that same amount of time, like almost two decades in the area. And I know lots of kids and now they're, you know, grown up and all that. Lots of teachers have that. And um, they're just fun to be around. They're so, uh, they're so um, open and present. I really like being around children. And, um, but then um, when I first started teaching children, I used to get really nervous about even, te- you know, teaching children I used to sweat bricks, actually. But then I learned, uh, you know, to study myself, and that was okay. Nobody was judging. And then I decided to teach adults, too, but I was kind of a little hesitant at first because uh, of the same reason, a little nervous. And then I realized adults are kind of a lot like kids, too. And so I've come to teach adults now. And um, my friend Eileen Blodgett and I teach through As If Studios, or when it was open, we taught classes there. It's closed to the public right now this year. So I am a resident art instructor at As If Studios. Hopefully it'll open in the new year. I'm teaching on Zoom right now. So, Denise, this has been a milestone year for you. Let's talk a bit about the the year, your book, um, and and then move into some what some of the preparations you've done for this exhibit. Yeah, it's been a milestone year. Um, well, I turned sixty five. Congratulations! Thank you. In February, that was big, and um, I had signed up my name for a show before the uh, center closed for renovations. And then uh, my friend, who uh, also is my creativity guide, I couldn't have done this without her, Lil Miguel. I worked closely with her, and she helped me accomplish uh, tying up all the little bits about the show and actually even helping me get a book manifested of the same name. So the book kind of goes along with the show. I never thought that I would do the book this year in the COVID year of all time, of all things, you know, Uh, it was amazing, but it actually helped me focus away from the news. I just threw myself into this book thing and 
gallery and show thing, and it it really kept me steady. I have a 3D model of the uh, Granucci Gallery that my friend Al Martinez made, and so um, I'm going to give that to the center when I'm done with it, and hopefully it'll help for future shows. But it's easy to lay everything out in this miniature maquette that's made to size, to scale. Um, Denise, how else are you involved in arts uh, in the community? Not that that isn't, that everything you're doing that we've talked about isn't enough, but what else? Well, um, I am a member at Artworks Gallery, 113 Mill Street. I recently became a a member last year, and um, that's been just amazing experience and it's been an amazing experience and then as I said I'm involved in as if studios and I teach privately but I also teach for an artist in the schools program uh, that is that takes art into the classrooms except for this year (laughs) we did some videos we are doing and did and doing some videos to be used in the classroom but we have a group of about five teaching artists that I think Brian Buckley started this program and um, Kimberly Ewing has taken it over. And I think all the art art, uh, lessons we did are now available to the schools free. And thank you for being a part of that really important program of bringing arts into the classroom. So Denise, uh, what is your website? And then we're going to talk to Bryn for just a moment about the uh, gallery. Um, my website is uh, com. That's W-E-Y. And um, you can also pre-order the book on the website. And all my classes are on the website. Um, the book, unfortunately, though, will not be available. It's coming, but it's going to be three or four weeks from now. And that's partly because of short staffing issues at the printers. So uh, the reception is on November 6th, and how long is your show going to be available in the Granucci Gallery? All the way to December 23rd. Well, Denise, it's it's delightful to talk with you um, today, and I'm going to just hop on over to Bryn. And Bryn, why don't you talk a little bit about um, the Granucci Gallery and what you guys have going on? Yes, thank you. So, um, as many people in the community know, the Center for the Arts finished our two-year renovation uh, last March, and we were open for two days, just enough time to have an art reception and one concert, and then we had to close our doors again um, due to COVID-19. Um, so, one of the benefits of being an art center instead of just the features we have uh, many different aspects of the center for the arts so one of those being the gallery which is a personal passion of mine um, so because the gallery is classified as a retail space we are actually able to open the gallery and start allowing patrons and having uh, exhibitions uh, last summer so the exhibitions are typically on six weeks rotations um, sometimes they're solo shows, sometimes they're group shows. It uh, mainly features local artists. After renovations, it's a lot more gallery square footage. It's more open and accessible to the public. It's a big, beautiful, white wall, blank canvas, perfect for showing off all of the local talent we have in this community.
Great. Well, we are out of time for today. So I have been speaking with Denise Way, local painter and art educator, and we've been speaking about her retrospective 22 years of painting the Yuba River. I've also been chatting with Bryn Farwell, who is the program manager and curator of the Granucci Gallery at the Center for the Arts. Thank you both for talking with me today, and um, good luck with your show, Denise. Thank you, Thank Charlotte. you, Charlotte. It was a pleasure. For KVMR, I'm Charlotte Peterson. You are listening to community-supported radio KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville. Closing out today's newscast, we have an essay by Molly Fisk. And at 6.30, this week's edition of Money Matters and 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. Today, all I want to do is amble around town and photograph gloriously colored trees, scuffing my feet in their fallen leaves. As you know, we had a hot, smoky September and most of October, when it seemed as though fall color was never going to happen. Then, after three cold nights, all the trees turned at once, fast and spectacularly. Rain is forecast for tomorrow, so their beauty, as all beauty, is fleeting. I teach on Thursdays, but I'm going to sneak out of my schedule for part of the day and absorb the crimson, peach, tangerine, pumpkin, fig, and sunshine-colored leaves. As a poet, really I should put things like this on my calendar. Writers traffic in sensory images, and visual ones are primary, at least for Westerners. I'm always telling my students to practice the others in order to enrich their work. Smell things, taste them, close their eyes and listen. I hesitate to give you advice. Well, that's not true. I love giving advice. It makes me very happy. But right now, with everyone uncertain and tender, so full of emotion from the swirling world, I don't want to burden you with anything more. But I will say that when life is overwhelming, it soothes me to consider whatever is directly in front of me. This frog's extremely loud voice, for instance, which seems to be coming from behind the refrigerator. How a teacup's handle attaches to the bowl. The way a zinnia's petals, the last zinnia of summer from my unkempt yard, overlap in circles around its yellow center. Even the symmetry of hubcaps can give me a jolt of pleasure as I'm walking down the street under these technicolor leaves. I had to practice looking closely, because I have by nature a big-picture mind. I was the one in school who could connect the farthest dots and thought the small stuff wasn't worth noticing. This is how writing helped me grow up. To get better at it, I had to avoid my own tendencies and move in new directions where I was inexpert. That took years to learn, since I am also by nature somewhat rebellious and surly, almost always convinced I'm right. These traits take patience to dismantle. But I wanted to write well more than I wanted to prove anything to anyone. I learned to tolerate not being good at things long enough to become better at them. I found out that practice really works, and to keep going won't kill me. In this way, I have improved my writing, 
broadened and strengthened my compassion and taught myself how to tolerate swimming in very cold water, something else I plan to do today, even though it is, God help us, November. Looking closely is a great tool for setting aside politics and despair, which are both abstractions. Finding something concrete to examine pulls you into the present moment, which is, after all, where we live and where we're going to keep on living, no matter who wins or loses any given election. Go ahead, take a look at your socks, or your left thumbnail, or the light filtering through that maple out your window, and the way it angles in and stripes the floor. That's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have Money Matters and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Good.